Thank you for tuning in to Alme Community Baptist Church, our podcast. Can you believe today is August 1? How, how, how did that happen? Where did July go? Man, it's just, it's going by so fast, I, I can't hardly believe it. We're still in our sermon series. Um, we're today on chapter 7. That's Acts chapter 7. Go get your Bible. Sit down and follow along. Today is, it's, well, every week's been interesting, but today is Stephen's sermon, actually his apologia. He's going to defend himself from the accusations that they made towards him. And it's a very important thing that we need to hear and pay attention to this message. God bless you. I hope you're enjoying the series. Uh, Come on out and see us sometime here at Tuolumne Community Baptist. God bless you. Welcome, podcast listeners. All right, here we are. Acts chapter 7. This is a a big chapter. Stephen preaches for 60, nearly 60 verses. I should be able to get through it in about two hours, so don't worry. You'll be all right. You get a little hungry, don't worry. You have donuts. If you didn't, that's your bad. I'll do my best to get you out of here by noon. I, I got 45 strong minutes and we'll see. But I couldn't do this without putting in my own monologue. So we're starting off with point number one. Okay, it clicked the computer. Come on. Oh, did I turn it on? There, okay. Point number one is apologetics. And I got to tell you a little story of why, why, Pastor, are you talking to us about apologetics? Well, I've, I've always told you that I'm not a college-educated pastor. I have had some years of, of college uh, with Northern California Bible School under Pastor David Sell, and I, I learned a tremendous amount for about two years, but that's all that I was able to have. And that was while I was already in ministry. I was already preaching the gospel. So I'm not a college educator. I don't have a degree in theology. And one day I was out at the, you know, that I had the track ministry. I was ministering out at the motocross tracks. We were following Northern California, the AMP motocross racing, and we were like 35 weeks out of the year. We were traveling all over Northern California with our motorhome, setting up a tent, and having church on Sunday mornings at the races. And it was interesting because you would meet new people all every Sunday, and we had a crowd probably about like this. It was, you know, I try not to exaggerate. We were running 35 to 40, sometimes 50 people on a Sunday. Had no microphone, so I had to speak up. And we'd always have new people. I had some elderly people that were in the crowd. They were there watching their grandson race. And they came and they seen we had a church service. Oh, they were excited because they missed church. And here there's a church service right out at the track. So they showed up for service. I went through my 15-minute message like I always did. And ended it. And everybody was happy. And this gentleman came up to me. And he says, that was absolutely incredible. He said, your apologetics were absolutely on the money. I said, sir, I didn't apologize about anything. That's how little I knew. I didn't know that apologetics was a a term used on how we defend the gospel. And I I didn't know. And he looked at me and he goes, oh, I, 
I just assumed you were you were a college educated, you know, probably a degreed pastor. And I said, no, not not at all. And I apologize that I didn't understand what the word apologetics meant. And he says, no, God's done something greater in you, and you're doing just fine. Keep doing what you're doing. So, you know, I don't know how many of you are like me that, you know, don't talk in these kind of terms. And you hear the preachers using his apologetics. What does that mean? Apologetics is simply defined as a defense of our Christian faith. The simplicity of this definition makes the complexity of the problem of defining apologetics. It turns out that a a diversity of approaches have been taken in defining that meaning, scope, and purpose of apologetics. The word apologetics derives from a Greek word called apologia. You guys remember ever hearing? And this is where the American language has, has gotten the word apology. And, you know, the American language has messed up words throughout time and history. Because apology is really, you're, def- you're, you're not, it's not so much as saying I'm sorry, you're defending what you had done. You're, you're giving an apology, defending your wrong, potentially. And that's truly what the word means. Uh, you know, like when you, you try to apologize to somebody, I don't want to hear your apology. Well, obviously they haven't forgiven you. And what you were trying to do, in my heart, you were probably trying to say, I'm just sorry. You know, I was wrong, whatever. But for the most part, the word apology means you're defending the the thing that you were wrong in. The word apologetic derives from the Greek word, which we already talked about that, which is originally used as a speech of defense. In ancient Athens, it referred referred to a defense made in a courtroom as part of a normal judicial procedure. After the accusation, the defendant was allowed to refute the charges of, with a defense, an apologia. And this classic example of apologia is what we're going to see today in Acts chapter 7. That's why we're talking about it. Stephen defends himself. The word apologia appears 17 times in noun or verb form in the New Testament and can be translated every time as defense or vindication in every case. The idea of offering a reasoned defense of the faith is evident. You can see it in Philippians 1, 7. You can look it up on your own. And especially in Peter, uh, 1 Peter 3, 15, which he says, but sanctify the Lord in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. Amen? That's what our Christian faith is all about, to be ready to defend what Jesus Christ has done and what it means to you. It has become customary to use the term apology to refer to a specific effort or work in defense of the faith. An apology might be written a written document, a, a speech, or even a film. The apologists develop their defenses of the Christian faith in relation to scientific and historical and even philosophical, philosophical edu- ethical and religious theology and critical issues. They, they use all those things. We may distinguish the four functions of apologetics. All four functions have historically been important in apologetics. 
Each has been companioned by a great Christian apologist throughout church history. I know this is a long beginning into the, but you need this. So number one, the vindication of proof. The vindication proof, it involves logical arrangements as well as scientific or historical evidence for the Christian faith. The goal of this function is to develop a positive case for Christianity as a brief system, a belief system that should be accepted socially and we must be ready to do this. Can I get an amen? This We're talking about our Christian faith, what we need to be ready. This means drawing out the logical implications of the Christian worldview so that we can be clearly seen and cross-contrasted with alternative worldviews. Okay, Pastor, what, what do you mean worldview? It's a particular way of seeing your life and your conception of the world. An example, I have broadened my worldview by experiencing a whole new eternity culture. That's what happens when you become a Christian. You realize that you're not just living this life for this life. We're living for eternity. We're going to live forever. So number two, defense. This function is closest to the New Testament and early Christian use of the word apologia, defending Christianity against all attacks made against it in every generation by critics of various belief systems. This function involves clarifying the Christian position in the light of misunderstandings and misrepresentations. It's answering to objections, criticisms, questions from non-Christians in a way of clearing away any of the difficulties that non-believers claim to stand on. I know this is a lot and your brains are going, oh, what? This is what we're supposed to be doing. This is how we defend our faith. And it's not that you go out and you argue with people. That's exactly what you're not to do. So number three, opposing beliefs. This function focuses on answering the arguments non-Christian Christians give in support of their own beliefs. Have you ever been there? Where people just want to argue with what you believe and what they believe. And I, you know, I won't argue at all. I'll let them believe what they want to believe. I'll only give them the facts that I know, and you can take it or leave it. Most apologists agree that this falsification defense cannot stand alone, since proving a non-Christian religion or philosophy to be false does not prove that Christianity is true. Hi, Manny. Nevertheless, it is an essential function of the apologetics. It's important for us to know and understand what others believe. You know, there used to be a professor at Columbia College, and when I was working, I so wanted to take his class on world religion. I don't know if he's still there anymore, but he was fantastic. I heard him speak at a church, and he did a class. It's important for us to understand what other cultures believe. Because then we have something to based on that I understand what you believe, but let me tell you now about Jesus. So number four. Is persuasion. Thank you, Tony. I'm not sure if you did it or I did it. 
persuasion. By this, we do not mean merely convincing people that Christianity is true, but it's persuading them to apply its truth to their life. This function focuses on bringing non-Christians to a point of commitment. The apologists, that's you, okay? Remember, I'm talking about you. The apologist's intent is to not merely win an intellectual, an intellectual argument, but to persuade people to commit their lives and eternal futures into a trust of the Son of God who died for them. Arguing with somebody is not going to persuade them of anything. We need to be able to win them without arguing. I know this is a long introduction to Acts 7, but we need to understand what's really happening here. Stephen does this amazing job of using his apologetic skills, and I guarantee you, well, he may have went to college, but I don't know. I don't think so. But we need to understand what's really happening. Please remember, when we get into the scripture, he didn't have an outline like I've got. He wasn't reading scripture off a screen. He was simply, the word of God was flowing out of him. Check this scripture out. 1 Timothy 4.2. It says, preach the word and be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. You notice it said longsuffering. You guys know what that means? To not give up on somebody just because they disagree with you. Long suffering is hanging in there and staying with them. If the man who returned my spirit back to the Lord had given up on me, I wouldn't be here today. He hung with me and he stayed with me. It was long suffering. I'm sure that he would shake his head and go, what am I doing after all these years with this idiot? I'm sure that he felt that way at times. But he hung in there, and that's what that word, long-suffering and teaching, is all about. So this brings us to point number two. Stephen, who is he? Who, who does, how does he have all this in him? I mean, who is this guy? Well, I'll tell you what we do know from Scripture. Stephen is a Greek name, so we can only assume that he was a Greek Jew. And I believe this because Dr. Luke pointed out last week in Acts 6, 5, that Nicholas, which was one of the other uh, six men that were named or seven men that were named, he's the only one that he said he was a proselyte to the faith, to the Jewish faith, a Gentile who was converted into the Jewish faith. So we can assume that Stephen, he would have said that about Stephen if that was the case. And the fact that Stephen is a Greek name. Stephen, he just said that he was a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and this means more, more than likely he was a Greek Jew, which would have put him at this time in the Hellenist group. You guys remember who was complaining in this whole accusation? It was the Hellenist. These are the people who were doing all the complaining, and they probably knew Stephen very well. I believe he had been preaching in the synagogues of both the freeman Jews as well as the Hebrew Jews. And his name was the first one listed. And I believe that wasn't by accident because it says in Acts verse 8, Stephen was full of power, full of faith and power and did great wonders and signs among the people. Believe me, I think 
they knew exactly who he was. So why did this make them so unhappy? Here he was a Hellenist Jew. The Hellenists were making the complaints. Our widows aren't getting fed. Our widows aren't getting the money they need. They're not getting taken care of. And so they appointed Stephen, which was a Hellenist Jew, and put him in charge. That should have made him happy, right? You would think it would have, but it didn't. And I think here's the reason in Acts. Did I, I went past it, didn't I? I already did it. Nope. Let me go back. There we go. 6, 9, and 10, at just the last ending of verse 9, it says, Disputing with Stephen is what they were doing. Why? Because they knew him. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spoke. Now, I want to give you something that's just my view on this situation. This is my view. This didn't come from Dr. Luke. It's not in the book. They thought, great. We got Stephen, the one we can't even argue with. He's too smart. You see, I believe these people, the Hellenists, they were complaining about their widows not being served, but they really weren't concerned about the widows. And this wasn't the answer they wanted to hear, to put someone like Stephen in charge of their distribution. No, I think they wanted to be them in charge themselves of the distribution so they could manipulate the food, manipulate the goods, and to steal it and sell it to the poor. Christians! Don't, don't look at me like that. This is what I believe. This is what was happening. They wanted to take charge themselves. Their plan didn't work, and they were jealous and angry and rose up against Stephen. And they couldn't argue with him because he was too good with his apologetics. He knew the word of God. He knew who he was in Christ. And again, this isn't doctrine. This is because... I've dealt with Christians just like these. I don't know if you have, but I certainly have. Christians who pretend to be Christians, but they're really more into it, looking for what they can get for themselves, trying to be a part of something. So now with that in mind, let's look at the sermon that Stephen spoke. And we're going to start with Acts 1. Then the high priest said, are these things so? See, we know that these accusations were made. He was blaspheming against God, blaspheming against Moses, and also blaspheming against the temple itself. And he addresses all these things in this sermon, and yet he never says it clearly as his defense. But he's going to give him the history all the way back to Abraham. And it's incredible the history that he gives. Verse 2, and he said, brethren and fathers, listen to the God of glory. You know, there's only one other place in scripture where the God of glory is used. Appeared to our fathers Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia, before he dwelt in Haran. And said to them, get out of your country and from your relatives and come to a land that I will show you. Understand the incredible miracle that's happening here. He's talking to Abraham, who lives in, a, in this country, where they're Chaldeans. They don't worship God. They worship the moon and the sun. And that's why God said, you got to get out of this land and you got to move. I will take you. And he heard God's voice. This is exactly what God had to do for me. 
He had to get me out of the bars and the nightclubs or where I was hanging out. If I said to anyone in one of those places I was hanging out, I think God's talking to me. They'd say, hey, I got a pill for that. I'll take care of that for you. And that's exactly what it was with Abraham. He had to get away from these non-believers so that God could work through him. And this is Stephen takes him all the way back to then. Verse 4. Then he came out to the land of the Chaldeans and dwelt in Haran. And from there, when his father was dead, he moved him to this land, which you now dwell. Right here in Jerusalem. That's what he's saying to him. He's taken him all the way back. And God gave him no inheritance in it, not even enough to set his foot on. But even when Abraham had no child, he promised to give it to him for a possession to all his descendants after him. Can you even imagine what Abraham was believing? He doesn't even have a child of his own. And yet God's talking to him. But God spoke in this way that his descendants would dwell in a foreign land and that they would bring him into bondage and oppose them for 400 years. You know, we, we, we read that and we just kind of blow by, yeah, for 400 years. You realize how old is America? 240? About 240 years old? 400 years. They were in bondage. We can, our, our heads can't even get around that. They were in bondage to these people. And the nation to whom they will be in bondage, God says, I will judge, says God. And after that, they shall come out and serve me in this place. In verse 8, it says, Then he gave him the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham begot Isaac. Okay, the miracle happened. And he circumcised him on the eighth day. Isaac begot Jacob, and Jacob begot the 12 patriarchs. And the patriarchs, becoming envious, sold Joseph into Egypt. Again, Joseph was their man, and he's talking about it. He's going to make a comparison. But God was with him. And delivered him out of all his troubles, and gave him favor and wisdom in the presence of Pharaoh. He's a slave. Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and made him governor over Egypt in his own house. You guys remember this story of Joseph? It's absolutely incredible of the favor that he had. Now a famine, a great trouble came over the land of Egypt and Canaan, and our fathers found no substance. But even Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, and he sent out our fathers first. He sent out all those boys, everyone except for Joseph, because they didn't know Joseph was there. The brothers are the ones that rejected. The brothers are the ones that sold Joseph into slavery. Verse 13, and the second time Joseph was made known to his brothers. He's comparing Joseph to Jesus. Jesus was rejected too. And so was Joseph. But then the second time. The second time Joseph was made known to his brothers and Joseph's family became known to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent and called his father Jacob and all his relatives with him. It was only 75 people that created the nation of Israel. Now understand, Stephen is preaching this. He's taken them all the way back. And these, he's in front of the, 
he's in front of the Sanhedrin. This is, he's, he's preaching in front of the Supreme Court. And they're loving everything they hear right now. They love history. And they were kind of, I'm sure they were amazed that this young man knew all this history. Somebody had been teaching him. So Jacob went down to Egypt and he died and our fathers. And they were carried back to Shechem and laid him in the tomb that Abraham brought out the sum of money from the sons of Haram, the father of Shechem. But when the time of the promise drew near, what promise? I've already had Isaac. No, the land which God had sworn to Abraham. The people grew and multiplied in Egypt. Seventy-five people over this period of time grew into be thousands, into millions, and they were multiplying. Till altogether the king rose who did not know Joseph. Finally, this new king comes in. He doesn't know Joseph. And he says, we got to put a stop to this. These guys are growing at such an incredible pace. They're going to overwhelm us. They're going to take us over. we got to stop them. So what did they do? This man dealt treacherously with his own people and oppressed our forefathers, making them expose their babies so that they might not live. At this time, Moses was born and was well-pleasing to God, and he was brought up in his father's house for three months. Imagine, how many times in history have you heard of people killing babies in the word of God? It's come twice. Here, in the life of Moses, and in the life of Jesus, they were killing all the babies from two-year-olds and back, all the males. Same thing here. They were getting rid of all the male Egyptian or the Hebrew babies so that they couldn't become. But God had a plan for Moses. His mom put him in that little basket, that little ark, and put him in the river at three months old. And he was found by Pharaoh's daughter. Incredible. But when he was, when he was set out, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and brought him as her own son. Then Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and deeds. That's incredible. He was taught. And nobody has told him anything. But look how he goes on with the story. Now when he was 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. God had spoke to him and said, you're not an Egyptian, dude. You know why you're feeling out of place? You know why you're feeling wrong? Because you're a Hebrew. You're a Hebrew. That's kind of like speaking to us, too. When we're feeling out of place in this world, it's because we need God. We have that empty space that only God can fill. And seeing one of them suffer a wrong. This is Moses again. He defended and avenged him who was oppressed and struck down the Egyptian. He killed him. He supposed that his brethren would have understood that God would deliver him by his hand. But they did not understand. This is the first time Moses is being rejected. And the next day, he appeared to two, to two of them as they were fighting and tried to reconcile them, saying, Men, why, you brethren, why, why do you wrong one another? It was a simple thing that Moses was trying to step in. They saw him as an Egyptian. They didn't see him as their savior who God had claimed him to be. But he who said to his neighbor, 
wrong pushed him away, saying, Who made you ruler and judge over us, Moses? Who makes you? You're an Egyptian. Who makes you ruler and judge? Do you want to kill me as you did the Egyptian yesterday? He didn't realize anybody knew. But they knew. So now Moses, at this saying, Moses fled and became a dweller in the land of Midian where he had two sons. So another period of time, 40 years had gone by. And when 40 years had passed, anybody know how old Moses is now? He's 80 years old, so don't tell me I can't be preaching to you when I'm 80. I'm going to be standing here. He's 80 years old. He's just getting started. He had two sons, and 40 years had passed, and an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of a fire in a bush in the wilderness on Mount Sinai. When Moses saw it, he marveled at the sight. <clears throat> and as he drew near to observe, the voice of the Lord came to him, saying, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God that moved him out, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses trembled and dared not to look. I get that. Then the Lord said to him, Take your sandals off your feet, for the place where you stand is holy ground. Remember again, I'm not just reading you to the Bible. What I want you to see is Stephen is quoting this stuff without having any notes. He knows this story so well. He's just telling the story. And he's giving his apologia. He's defending himself of the accusations. How could anybody make an accusation against this guy who knows the history the way he does? I have surely seen the oppression of my people. This is God speaking to Moses who are in Egypt. I have heard their groaning and have come down to deliver them. And now come, I will send you to Egypt. He's going to send Moses to Egypt. And, and you know, a little side story that, that Stephen didn't throw in here. And here Moses began to stutter and he said to God, I can't talk. I can't preach. He was, we just read that he was knowledgeable in all the Egyptian teachings and knowledge. But something's changed in him. And so God said, fine, I'll give you your brother. Anyway, verse 35. This Moses, whom they rejected, whom they rejected, saying, who made you, who made you a ruler and a judge? Do you remember that? When that Israelite said that, they rejected Moses the first time. And this is the one who God sent to be ruler and deliver by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Remember, he's making a coalition between Jesus and Moses now. Moses had a lot of characteristics that line up perfectly with Jesus. He was rejected the first time. And what did we do to Jesus when we met him the first time? We crucified him because we did not believe. You say, well, Pastor, you're throwing around those we's. No, your sin, my sin, we crucified him. Verse 36, he brought them out. And after he had shown signs and wonders in G Egypt, you guys remember the plagues, right? He doesn't go through all the 10 plagues, but he did incredible signs and wonders in Egypt. And he was in the wilderness 40 years. Anybody know how old Moses is now? What's three times 40? 120? Yeah. 
This is the Moses who said to the children of Israel, the Lord your God shall rise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren whom you shall hear. Moses was prophesying about Jesus. We're gonna, I'm going to raise up someone in your midst, one of you, and you're going to listen to him and hear him. But what did they do? They rejected him. And this is what Stephen is telling them. Verse 38, he says, this is he who was in the congregation in the wilderness with an angel who spoke to him on Mount Sinai and with your fathers, the one who received the living oracles to give to us. He received up on the mountain, the Ten Commandments, all the things that we're supposed to live by. And he gave them to you. And oh, you listen to what he says, whom our fathers would not obey, but rejected and their hearts, they turned back to Egypt. The people were always turning back on Moses. Saying to Aaron, make us gods for before, to go before us. As for this Moses who brought us out the land of Egypt, we do not know what's become of him. It's only been 40 days that he's been up on the mountain. And yet, they convince Aaron to build a golden calf. This is how this, this family lives. And they made a calf in those days. They offered sacrifices to the idol and rejoiced in the works of their hands. Wow. He rejoiced in their own works. Then God turned and gave them up to worship the hosts of heaven. You guys know who the host of heaven is? It's Satan. It's Satan himself. It's told in the word of God that he, he is the, the ruler of the universe of, over us. is Satan. He's out there hard at work. And God gave him up. In other words, they died. As it is written in the book of the prophets, did you offer me slaughtered animals and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? Don't you guys remember who I am, your God? You also took, took up the tabernacle of Malak and the star of your God, Ramoth, images which you made to worship, talking about their calf, and I will carry you away beyond Babylon. God was pretty upset. Our fathers had a tabernacle of wilderness, of witness in the wilderness, as he appointed, instructing Moses to make it according to the pattern that he showed him. Now he's addressing this blasphemy on the temple. He's going to address that. Which our fathers, having received it, turned also and brought with Joseph into the land and possessed <coughs> land, possessed by the Gentiles. And God drove them out and <clears throat> faced our fathers until the days of David. So God was giving them the lands. They were going out and warring against all the people that were in the land of Jerusalem that God had promised. And now they're going in. Who found favor before God and asked to find a dwelling place for God of Jacob. See, God never asked for a temple. He never asked for a temple. He didn't allow David to build it. It says, but Solomon built it a house that God had never asked for. Where does God reside? Is he in this house? He's in you. 
He's in us. We're the temple of God. This house he built for us so that we have a place to come together and worship and learn the oracles of God. That's why we're here. But God, he's only in this house when you're here. He's not residing here. You come down here and you pray and you find God. That's because you brought him in the door with you. And you feel the presence of God. That's because he's in you. However, the Most High does not dwell in temples made of hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. It's his footstool. What house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? He's making it very clear. He's, he's now defended his case really well. I didn't blaspheme against the temple. Besides, the temple means nothing. It's what's in us. Verse 50 has my hand not made all these things? This is God speaking. And this is Stephen saying this to the Sanhedrin. Hasn't my God made all these things? Well, this is the verse that turned it around. They were pretty impressed. Any preacher that preaches this, you're probably, if I, if I were to preach it at you, the way he was with them, you'd probably be upset with me. He says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in the heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Wow. You stiff-necked. And, you know, we talked about in the past, I don't know if you, if you remember hearing it, but I talked about what the impardonable sin truly is. It's a rejection of the Holy Spirit. It's the rejection of the Holy Spirit, that gnawing, that tugging. Come on, get up, go to church. Come on, you've got to get saved. That thing that you feel when you're in church and you try to pull away from, you try to avoid it. That's what it is. 52, which the prophets, <clears throat> the prophets did your fathers not persecute. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who foretold the coming of the just one, whom you now have become the betrayers and the murderers. It's you guys that killed him. Who have received by the law, by the direction of the angels, and have not kept it. You guys received it. You have the books. You have the scrolls. You have it all. And you don't receive it. And when they heard these things... They were cut to the heart and they gnashed with, at him with their teeth. You can't even imagine how angry they were. Gritting their teeth. We're going to get them. And they, literally, they ran at him. These are the Sanhedrin. They ran at him. But he, being full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into the heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Do you understand? Everywhere else in Scripture, when it talks about God and Jesus, where is Jesus? He's sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting. And this is what made these guys so angry when he said, I see Jesus standing because even all of their prophets and all of the priests, when they were finished, they would sit down. That means they're finished. But you're saying Jesus is standing. Yes, because he's standing, welcoming Stephen into his arms. Verse 56, it says, he and said, look, see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing 
at the right hand of God. He's standing there at the right hand of God. And they cried out with a loud voice. They stopped their ears like a bunch of babies and they ran at him in one accord. Oh, there's that one accord again. I've been preaching about that one accord thing. There's power in one accord. This happens to be one accord for evil. And they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their clothes so they could aggressively throw rocks and laid them at another young man that we haven't met yet. His name is Saul. Saul is going to become Paul. He's going to become a very intricate part here in the very near future in the book of Acts. And they stoned Stephen as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice. Nearly the same thing Jesus said, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he heard this, and when he had said this, sorry, he fell asleep. They didn't kill him. God took him. God took him. This picture depicts them throwing rocks at Stephen. It said earlier that he had a face like an angel, that God glowed in him. And God resided in him. I think this picture is accurately wrong. Because I think it was those guys in the background that were really throwing the rocks. And they took their Sadducee robes off and put them down at Paul's feet. And they were throwing the rocks. Can you imagine how brutal that is? You, you can't even imagine how brutal being stoned is. So why did God allow this to happen? We've heard all this about Stephen. What an incredible man that knows everything. It says in Acts 1, I don't have this on there. This is just a little extra. Now Saul was consenting to the death. The, the young man that was standing there, that they were putting, putting the clothes down by him. And at the time, at that time, a great persecution rose arose against the church which was in Jerusalem and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judah Samaria except the apostles and the devout man carried Stephen to his burial and made great lamentation for for him do you guys remember just a few weeks ago we were in Acts 1 and it said this, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem and all of Judah and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. But up until now, they were in Jerusalem. This mega church had developed faster than they ever anticipated. Thousands upon thousands of people were getting saved and starting this new church. So why did God sacrifice Stephen, this incredible saint? Because they needed to be scattered. It blew up in this new church like throwing a bomb in. It literally blew up because finally they now feel like they have the right to begin to persecute these Christians. They were holding off. They were holding off. They hadn't killed anybody yet. Now they have. And the Christians that were there, these thousands upon thousands of Christians were now running for their lives heading out to Samaria, to Judah, and to outer parts of the land. They were going 
and they were going to start churches. That's what happened. And when the disciples finally see, I'm, I'm getting a little bit ahead, when they finally see, hey, these Christians, they left, they took off, and they've started churches over there. We better go help them out. Yes, you better. And that's when they, the, the whole missions trip starts. They start going out to these new churches and developing the new churches throughout the land. God had to scatter them. He had to make a move, and it was a big move. And God in heaven was standing, accepting Stephen as our very first martyr. I know that was a mouthful, guys, and I got it done at two minutes to 12. Praise God, you still get to have lunch at Perko's. It's not called Perko's no more, though. What's it called? Barrows or something like that. Praise God. Tony, would you come on back up? And I know this, this message was like an education. This was... It, it was a lot. It was a lot. Well, thank you. This was, thank you so much. Because we need to hear Stephen's story and why he was saying it the way he did. And he proved it to such an incredible, they, they couldn't do anything but kill him. Because he was right. They were stoning him out of the conviction of their own hearts. And how often do we do the same thing today? You're an apologist. You are. You go out and you defend your faith, but you don't do it with fists drawn and swinging at people. You explain to them what God has done for me. I know Manny, I'd like to knock him out sometimes too. Just, just knock them down, you know. Accept Jesus now or else. They'd look at my arthritic hands and they'd say, hey, you don't scare me. I'll get Manny. Arguing doesn't win anybody to Christ. Facts do. And understanding your Christian faith, how it all began. This is incredible what Stephen has done. He gave us the whole story. Are we expected to do that? Well, sometimes. Depending on who it is we're talking to and they have no understanding, some understanding, a little understanding. It's important that you know where you're coming from. And that's what this story is all about. Yes, it blew up and scattered the churches. And here we are, 2,000 years later, talking about the story. It worked, right? 2,000 years later, we're still telling the story of why they stoned Stephen. It's important. It's important that we know, and it's important. I can't wait to move on to chapter 8 and 9. Oh, it's going to get exciting. The Apostle Paul is going to get converted. Saul, this guy, who's who now, in the very next chapter, goes out and starts persecuting Christians, dragging them out of their homes and putting them in jail. God's going to use him in a great and mighty way. You think he can't use you? You're wrong. He can use each and every one of us. And we need to remember that. God bless you. Let's sing a song before we go home.